0: you have your Bibles, hope you do take them and turn to Psalm 23. We're going to finish Psalm 23 today. What I intended to be a three-week series has stretched into seven, and today is it, right? We will finish up. And I want us to look back to where we've been just for a moment. I want us to look ahead to what David promises in this last verse. And then I want to just kind of talk about the whole Psalm and ask what do we do with what we know What do we do as a result? And so Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for His namesake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I will fear no danger. For You are with me, Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Psalm 23 has given us some amazing truths about the God that we serve that our God is our shepherd. Yahweh, the God of the universe that spoke and created all that we know and have seen. Yahweh, the one true God. Yahweh, who is, who always has been and is who we always will be, is my personal, my shepherd. And that He provides for us. He leads us. He guides us. He gives us rest. He restores us. He protects us. He invites us into a presence and a relationship with Him for our good and His glory. And based on what David has written about the shepherd in Psalm 23 verses 1 through 5, David moves to declare a future reality based on past and present truth. So he moves to say that this is a future promise based on what we already know. So he declares in this moment a reality that is to come, a reality that will go forth, a reality that will continue based on what has already taken place. It's the kind of same idea behind Jesus when he asked his disciples in John chapter 6 after it says multitudes have left him. He has built up a huge following he preaches a really hard message multitudes leave and it says he turns to the 12 and says do you also want to go and it says that Peter looked at him and said where shall we go we have come to know we have seen we know that you are the son of God and in you are the words of eternal life basically he says Jesus we have nowhere else I know what you have done for us I see the reality of who you are and because of that I am putting my faith and my trust in you moving forward And I hope that in your life you've experienced enough of what Jesus can do for you that as you look into the future, you are saying, I have no other option. I'm going to continue to place my trust in Him. Psalm 23, 6 says this, Surely goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I We just want to break that passage down verse by verse, or actually not verse by verse, it's one verse, word by word a little bit, and ask what we can learn from this passage. And the first word there is the word assuredly. Now it means that we have no doubt that we are absolutely certain that David is saying that with every fiber of my being, I am assured that what I'm about to say is the truth. Now, we use the word surely a little bit differently in our society at times. At times we use it almost sarcastically like surely Tennessee won't go to South Carolina and get blown out. Like we, like surely that's not going to happen. You know, for Kentucky fans, surely Kentucky's not going to lose to Vanderbilt, right? Noah got a shot in earlier. I'm, I'm just telling y'all, Kentucky loses basketball games. I've been refraining from it, but we may not refrain anymore, right? We, we say it like, surely that's not, surely. What's happening here is David is saying, surely. Um, one, uh, one commentator I read, which I like this, said that the way you can compare this is, do you remember in the King James Version in the New Testament, when Jesus would talk, sometimes he would say, verily, verily, right? So, I mean, how many of you remember the verily, verily, right? And we never used that in real life. Nobody walked up to me ever and said, verily, verily, I say unto you. But we knew what that meant is, this is assured. It's almost they said like that here in Psalm 23, 6. David is saying, verily, verily, truly, assuredly, certainly, surely. And then he gives two characteristics of who God is and how God works in our lives. He says, surely goodness and faithful love. The word goodness here is the Hebrew word tov, which means the broadest sense of the word good. It means goodness. It means good things in our lives, physically, morally, practically, economically, spiritually, in every sense. It means a total goodness, a surrounding goodness. It is that God is good. At the depth of his being, he is good, right? We sing about that. We talk about that. He is a good, good Father. God is so good. God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. and We know that. That there is not evil within Him. There is not bad intentions in His character that everything He does is for our good. This word speaks of His benevolence. And the truth of that can transform how we live and act and the way that we walk through life. When we realize that God is for our good, we can trust Him with our lives and not fear Him. Not walk in Uh uh-oh, I hope I don't make a mistake. We're walking into what God has prepared for us. A lot of people don't see God that way. A lot of people see God as the cop that gets behind you going down the road. And even though you're doing absolutely nothing wrong in the moment, anybody here ever go through the mental checklist? Their tag's up to date. It's all good. Light's all working. Not speeding. Anybody else? Or is that just me? All right. And so, you know, like a cop gets behind you or you see one on the side of the road. How many of you, even if you're going speed limits, you put a little brake pressure on when you see the cop on the side of the road? Like it's just something. And people see God that way. Oh, God's around. I've got to slow down. got to watch out. Is everything in my life good? But Scripture makes it clear that's not how God is approaching us. He is not a cop looking how he might arrest us. He is a God searching for how he might bless us. And it's a different life when you live knowing that. Somebody said it this way, said that, that many of us will say in our minds, the Lord is my shepherd, but man, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. The Lord is my shepherd, but but I don't, man, I don't feel good right now and I'm just not in a good place physically. The Lord is my shepherd, but man, i got this going on in my life and I don't know how I'm going to handle that. If we would reverse those understands that he changes how we live if instead we say man I can't pay my bills right now but the Lord is my shepherd man I don't feel great right now man I'm really I really don't feel good and physically I'm doing well but the Lord is my shepherd I've got this problem that I don't know how I'm going to handle but the Lord is my shepherd that we live our lives with the reality that God's goodness is what He is trying to impart into our lives. And it's not just His goodness. It says, surely, certainly, assuredly, verily, God's goodness, His good intentions towards me, and His faithful love. Now, if you grew up like I did, memorizing this this chapter, you say, surely goodness and Mercy, right? And it's interesting because when we think of mercy, we think of God not doing to us what we deserve. And there's definitely part of that. But the word here is not... A word that we typically would translate mercy in that way, we would translate it faithful love. It is the word chesed, which is the covenantal love of God. It is the love that he establishes with his people when he establishes the covenant. And he is basically saying, I am going to love you. I am going to take care of you. This is a covenant I am making with my people. And it is a faithful love. It is loving kindness. It is the always going after you kind of love. It is based Based on the character that God is love. And he wants to impart that to us. That agape, to use the Greek word, love. Sacrificial, always hoping, always pursuing love. And David says, based on everything I know about the Lord being my shepherd and leading me to good places and making me rest and protecting me in the darkest places of my life, I know for sure that in the future my God is going to be good to me and He's going to be faithful in His love because God is good and God is love. And it says, surely goodness and faithful love, those two things will pursue me. That may be a different translation again than you grew up with, but the word follow The word pursue that is listed here is a word that literally means to hunt down. This word is used 150 times in the Old Testament. One of the prominent places it is used is in 1 Samuel chapter 26 when David speaks of the armies of Saul. They are hunting me down. They are pursuing me. This is a passionate pursuit of something that you are trying to catch and grab. And almost always in the Old Testament, it is used of someone with nefarious, with problematic with bad intentions. They are hunting me down. They are pursuing me. They are seeking me. But in this particular place, look at what it is that is pursuing us, that is hunting us down, that is coming after us. It is not bad things. It is the goodness and the faithful love of our Lord. They think that some of what's happening here is that David has in mind, they've kind of assumed this, there's nothing in the text in this, so he says this, but just knowing his background, a lot of scholars, a lot of commentators through the years have said that what they are imagining here are the herding sheepdogs that he would have been around who are consistently nipping at the heels of the sheep to keep them in line. Corralling them, herding them, getting where they need to go, and how do they do it? They nipped at their heels. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I don't really have a dog that nips at my heels for food, but I have a cat that does. In fact, our cat will weave in and out of my legs until I get what he wants. I really shouldn't refer to him as my cat. It's more the rest of the family's cat, and I deal with him, but. He sees me as a food source. He has a certain food that he likes every morning, and we ran out of it a day or so ago, and we forgot to go get any more, and he has let us know every morning, (laughs) nonstop. He says that God's goodness and mercy are like those sheepdogs nipping at the heels of the sheep, giving them what they need, keeping them in line because if not if left our own devices we wouldn't do what God called us to do God is pursuing us again i want you to think about people's normal picture of God as a killjoy and someone that's harsh and someone that's got rules that just makes it difficult to live life When what is really happening is that we have a God who loves and cares so much for us that He is pursuing us with a violent search, going after us with everything He has. Francis Thompson was a 19th century British poet. And I know nothing excites you more than hearing the phrase 19th century British poet. But he was a guy that struggled in life with poverty and poor health. And some of that was because he was addicted to... opium. Now, in their day, you could just go to the store and buy opium over the counter. And he got addicted to opium and he spent his money on that and he became poor and in poor health. And in the midst of all of that time, he wrote one of the most famous poems of that time period. And the title of the poem is an interesting one because it is called The Hound of Heaven. And in it, he says things like, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I hid from him. I sped from those strong feet that followed after us. And yet he is describing God. He is describing Jesus. And he said, he pursued me with an unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, a deliberate speed, and majestic urgency. And I love that picture that God is pursuing us. Not, he's not running after us because he's unhurried. He's Unperturbed, He is setting the pace himself. It is deliberate and yet urgent. David says, surely God's goodness and his faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And then the second half of that verse, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The word dwell there means to just do that, to settle down, to be relaxed, to be at home. You know the difference between living out of a suitcase in a hotel room and settling down at home, right? There's a difference between staying somewhere and living somewhere. There are a lot of people that see in this particular psalm a tracing of the year of a sheep starting at the house of the master and the traveling to find the quiet waters, the traveling to find the lush fields, the walking through the darkest valley, the going to the, so as we talked last week, the summer highlands, the plateaus where they would have prepared a field and a meadow for them and then returning to to winter at home. And the idea is we have made it another journey, we have made it another year, and now we are settling down from our weary travels and resting at home. And David says, I know that because of who God is and what He has done, He is going to allow me to dwell. And then it says, in the house of the Lord. Now, we are in a place where we are getting ready to talk in a few weeks about the birth of Jesus. And one of the things that we'll talk about is that Jesus was born in a specific city, right? That city was Bethlehem or the house of bread, right? The house Beth bread. Here it gives a name to this place that we will dwell just like Bethlehem, it is a Beth Yahweh, the house of the Lord. Now, in their day and time, they would have thought of that as the tabernacle or the temple. But I think the symbolic understanding here is not a particular place, but what those places represented. And what those places represented was the presence of God on earth. And what he is saying here is that because of who God is, surely his goodness is going to chase after me. Surely his loving kindness is going to chase after me. And I know that I can dwell. I can live. I can rest. I can be in the presence of God as long as I shall live. The idea there is not just to the end of this earthly life, the idea, which is why the um, older translations translate it forever, the actual words are as long as I live, but in their day and time they thought of days just extending beyond and beyond and beyond, that there would come a time when our days would extend beyond this world into another, and that as a result we would dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that we get to spend eternity in the presence of Almighty God in His peace and love and comfort. And that's how he ends the psalm. Surely, certainly, verily, goodness, God's loving kindness is going to nip at my heels for all of my days. And then I get to dwell in the presence of God forever. That's pretty good stuff. Amen? That's pretty good stuff. And when you think back over this entire psalm, I just want to kind of end today asking the question, so what do we do in light of all of that? What do we do in light of all that we have learned about this particular psalm from that first week when we talked about the majestic, unbelievable God that loves us and cares for us and allows us to come under his leadership to that last line that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. i got just two points, just two. And then we're done. Although one of these points has four other points, but there are only two points. (laughs) And the first is this. We simply follow the shepherd. We give our lives to him. We dedicate our lives to him. We surrender to him. There are four parts of that that we really need to understand. And the first is this, that we need to understand our need for a shepherd. Every single person in this room needs the leadership of the Lord in their lives or we are hopeless. Without the Lord, we have no direction. We have no ability to kind of keep where we're going. Romans 3.23, you know this verse, right? It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What I find interesting about that passage is that it is in the present tense, which means that all have sinned in the past, but that fall short is present, meaning we are continually falling short of what God has called us to do. There's not a person in this room that has lived a perfect life for this week, this day, or this hour. And as a result, we are people that are in need of a savior, in need of a shepherd at all times because left to our own devices, we do not go the way that God would have us to go. We are falling short. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, it uses the example of a sheep to describe us. We. All like sheep have gone astray and each one has turned in his own way. Now what happens in our society is not only do we individually decide to not go the way God has called us to go, we collectively go together in the ways that are outside of what God wants without the shepherd's leadership. I was on uh, Twitter this week when I saw something interesting there. We um, had been joking with a couple of people about you know, how things... People will post things on Twitter, on social media, like the end is near, and they'll give a weird example of something that's happening in the world. Okay. And so um, we had, had some discussions about that on like Wednesday night. On Thursday morning I get up and I'm looking through Twitter feed at some point, and on there is a video from Inner Mongolia. Anybody see this video? That there are sheep in Inner Mongolia, and about 100 sheep, that are going in a circle, following each other in a circle, and they have been walking in a circle for 12 days consecutively. And nobody knows why. Now, it was reported by the Chinese government on their web, so who knows, they may be all trying to trap us into clicking on something. So I didn't click on it, I just saw the Twitter thing going, right? But here's the crazy thing about that is... Scientists had weighed in, because I Googled what's going on here. Scientists have weighed in that there's some sort of disease they can get where they walk around in circles without any meaning, just following the one in front of them and not knowing where they're going or what purpose they have in life. I call that, that disease in human beings sin. Walking aimlessly, following the crowd in a road, not doing anything. For 12 days, they hadn't stopped for 12 days. Instead said at some point, one from outside the circle, there's this group of sheep just watching them, by the way. Spectators, I guess. And one would walk into the middle of the circle and spin in the middle of the circle and then walk out. It's like weird square dancing happening in her Mongolia. Right? But all of us left to our own devices are people that would just walk aimlessly, that would go without direction. And the truth is, if you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have not surrendered to the shepherd, then you are lost without direction. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the reality is that if we follow that path for all of our lives, when we get to the end of the life, we will not spend eternity in the presence of the Lord. We will spend eternity separated from Him. And the first step in... Following the shepherd is understanding our need. Now, for those of you that are believers in the room, one of the things that we have to understand is, yes, God has saved us. Yes, when he saved us, he forgave us of our sins, past, present, and future. But in the midst of that, if we want to live the life that we ought to live, that is best for us, that is glorifying for him, then we need to daily surrender to following him. And understand our need to do that on a daily basis, which leads to the second thing that we have to do if we're going to follow the shepherd, and that is determine our desire. Do we really want to do this? Do we want to sacrifice what it would mean sacrifice? Do we want to give up what it would mean giving up? Do we want to do what it's going to call us to do? Does it mean do we want to be bold when it calls us to be bold? Do we want to say what needs to be said? Some of you are going to have an opportunity this week to follow the shepherd when it comes to a discussion with your family. I heard Tim in his prayer eloquently mention that. And some of you are going to gather around a table with people for whom you are family with or extended family or friends. You're going to sit around a table at Thanksgiving and you're going to share a meal together. And there are going to be opportunities for you this week to have conversations that could lead people to understand their need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. And the question is do you really have the desire to do what? you know you need to do, which is to have those conversations. We need to understand our need. We need to determine our desire. Third, we need to understand God's view of us. That God loves you wherever you are. And whoever you are and no matter what you've done, God is saying to you, he is pursuing you and he is asking you, he is giving you the opportunity, he is inviting you to the table to have a conversation, to follow him, to be one of his disciples, no matter what you've done no matter what guilt may lay on your heart, no matter what you did yesterday or last week or last year or ten years ago, no matter what it is in your mind that you think is the hang-up that would not allow God to love you, what you have done is not greater than the cross that Jesus has borne for your sins. And He loves you regardless of where you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, and you can come into that relationship. And once you understand your need for Him, and once you understand that you have a desire to follow God, whatever that means... You have to understand that what it comes from is a place of love that God has for us. And then the last thing if we're going to follow the shepherd is simply to just surrender and trust Him. Surrender our lives, surrender our goals, surrender our desires for Him. And trust God. I can't imagine in this psalm one of the sheep rejecting the shepherd that is here or questioning the shepherd's methods or desires. They just surrender and trust. If a sheep gets out of line, the shepherd takes care of that. And In our lives, sometimes it will mean discipline, sometimes it will mean difficulty that God will allow to bring us back into order. The first point of application when we think about this particular passage is we need... To follow the shepherd. And here's the second. We need to give thanks. And I know it's Thanksgiving week. And this is the week when everybody talks about giving thanks. But how can you read Psalm 23. And understand the truths that are embedded into the depths of what that psalm teaches. And not say thank you Lord. How can you not give thanks to him? We ought to be a people who live a lifestyle of perpetual gratitude, perpetual thanks. And yet the church that ought to be a place of people of perpetual praise and gratitude often falls prey to being people of grumbling and complaining. Charles Spurgeon, by the way, not the most contemporary pastor, he pastored a couple hundred years ago, said this about the church. I do not think the church rejoices enough. We all grumble enough. We all groan enough. But very few of us rejoice enough. We complain. We talk. We grumble. We're like the Israelites after they were delivered from, the promise, from slavery in Egypt on the way to the Promised Land, always worried that the details aren't being taken care of, always worried that it's not quite right, always worried about what could be, always feeling like we can give a better suggestions or we can do this better or we can have that better. God knows our propensity to ingratitude, and so he tells us throughout scripture to give thanks. One example, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, there are over 150 times in the Bible when the word thanks is used, and 38 of those, okay, so 38 of those specifically command us to give thanks. And this verse, Psalm I mean in first Thessalonians 5:18, give thanks is a command. It is written with a command that this is part of what it means to follow Christ is that we are to be people who give thanks. And we're going to talk in a moment the difference between having an attitude of gratitude and giving thanks, but we are commanded to give thanks. Throughout the Old Testament, again and again, we're told to give thanks, to give thanks, to be thankful. And in Hebrew, there are at least seven words that describe what it means to give thanks. And I listed them for you here. I don't expect you to remember all those. We should have those on the next screen, I think. There it is. I mean, you can take these on notes if you want to. But these are the seven words from Hebrew that translate into giving thanks in The Old Testament. Tudah, which is singing together, like as a group, as a people. Barak, which is kneeling. Tehillah, not the alcoholic beverage. Tehillah, singing a song of thanks. Halal, boast and praising with your voice. It's where we get the word. Hallelujah, give praise to Yahweh. Yada, expressive praise. Zamar, praise with an instrument. And Shabbat, shouting praise. What I want you to notice as you look through all these is these are active words. When it says give thanks in Scripture, it doesn't mean to, to just calmly say thank you. It is expressive, it is loud, it is active. In fact, in Psalm 100, verse 4, one of the most famous verses for thanksgiving in the Old Testament. It says, enter his gates with tada, and into his courts with Tehillah, Yada to him, Barak before his name. And so just so you know, because I know you probably don't have those memorized from a moment ago, it is enter his gates with boisterously singing together and into his courts with expressive songs of thanksgiving. When it says "Yada to him, that is to... Wave your arms violently. It is to declare yourself. It is to actively engage in physical form in praising God and then kneel before His name. The picture literally is walking into the sanctuary, shouting at the top of your lungs songs of praise while you are fervently waving your arms around and then coming to His presence and kneeling before Him. Sounds like a Baptist worship service, doesn't it? By the way, Psalm 100 is not a, hey, have you ever thought about doing this in worship somewhere? Have you ever thought about living your life this way? Psalm 100 is what? It's command, not suggestion. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when it talks about giving thanks, words that are given are all active. And true thanksgiving is active. Gratitude without action is like faith without works. Tim Keller says, It's one thing to be grateful. It's one thing to have an attitude of gratitude. It's another to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. When you read Psalm 23... And I said, how can you not be thankful when you read that? How can you not say, thank you, Lord? I imagine most of you thought just that, passive kind of, yeah, thank you, Lord. But that's not what's intended in Scripture. It is full on, full life, living it out, gloriously, joyously declaring your thanks to the Lord. It is active participation in giving thanks. one of the things that I've discovered in my life is when I practice this habit of grace, when I practice this spiritual discipline of giving thanks, man, it's good for my soul. So here's the question for you. How are you going to give thanks this week? And I hope your answer is more than you're going to eat a whole lot of turkey and dressing. Who are you going to write a letter to? Who are you going to call on the phone? Who are you going to offer what god has done in your life how are you going to share what god's doing in your life how great god is around the thanksgiving table when you gather together with family or friends or at the office if you still are working this week and you you don't want to be there you don't want to be in the office but how are you going to give thanks in the midst of that how are you going to give thanks this week to the lord how are you going to sing his praise how are you going to actively serve him how are you going to declare his glory the Psalms that says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When I was a kid, we used to sing that and say, and we would like emphasize, say so, say so, like over and over. That's not what it isn't intended for you just to shout out, say so. The intention is for you to tell people about who God is and what he's done in your life. How are you going to show thanks this week to someone else? To somebody in your life that you're thankful for. Noah and I for uh last few months have had this little podcast that we do and somehow over the last few uh, weeks we started we we decided we were going to interview people have interesting conversations and we thought man we're going to struggle to find enough people to be able to do this and we'll, we'll just do what we can and we started getting contacted by people wanting us to interview them they obviously haven't seen how many people listen to the podcast because it's not worth that but We've gotten to have some really interesting conversations. The President of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the most um, recognized international missionaries, people that have written books that are interesting lately, two of our youth here at the church. That's our most listened to episode, by the way. Um, this past week, Noah came to me a couple weeks ago and said, Hey, um, we, uh, we got a request again for somebody to interview. Do you know a George Guthrie? And I go, Yeah, I do. He was my... Uh, Academic advisor at Union University. He grew up in Dyersburg, Tennessee, his, from my home church, and I had him for several classes. And he said, "Well, he wants that his contact person has asked us to interview him," and so we interviewed him this past week. Podcast is up; you can go listen to that if you want to. He's a fascinating man, he, brilliant biblical scholar. But after it was over, we were just, you know, we record online. Obviously, he, he's in Vancouver we're recording online, and after it's over and we kind of shut down, I just felt the Lord urging me to tell him a story. And I thought, I've never told him this. So when I was a freshman at Union, I came from Dyersburg, First Baptist Church, Dyersburg, where um, I had been the leader in our youth group and was kind of seen as that in our school and had a great time at First Dyersburg. Felt really good about my place in the world. And I went to Union, and there were lots of those people at Union. Like all those people came to Union. And I was like, ah, I'm not really that special here, right? And I got into class with Dr. Guthrie on Old Testament, Introduction to Old Testament. And I remember sitting there, and I was in religion major. I was going to be a pastor. I knew that. And I remember sitting in there, and he starts coming at the Bible from an academic perspective. Now, most of us in this room, when you have just kind of, you haven't come from an academic perspective. How people criticize it, how people critique it outside. And he starts throwing things into my head. Now, listen, Dr. Guthrie is a faithful teacher of God's Word. He was preparing us to be able to answer questions that we needed to answer. But in the midst of that semester, when I I have a hard time finding my place at Union, when I'm really struggling with some of the academic stuff that's happening with the Bible, I go through a mini crisis of faith. Do I really believe all this stuff? Is this what God's really called me to do? Like, I could chuck it all right now and go be an accountant or do something. Not that that would be fun, but like I could do something, right? Go into business or I could go whatever. Like I could, you know, that first semester, you're like, I, when you get to like fourth semester, it's really hard to chuck your major and do something else. Like I could do something different. And it was Dr. Guthrie's, a couple of conversations we had outside of class in his teaching in class that steadied the ship for me. In his new book that he writes, he talks about the, the word of God being a rock to us. And he showed me how the word of God was a rock in my life, something I could build my life upon. I never told him that. I just this union—it's kind of weird to tell your professor that, you know. And so we had he kind of opened the door because he had told me. He said, "Well, it's hard for me to have this conversation. You talk about being in ministry twenty-five years. I still think of you as a twenty-five-year-old kid." And I was like, well, "Many in our church still do too. It's okay." And so I just felt the opening, and I told him that story. I said, I just want to say thank you. I'd actually told his mom, his mom and dad, faithful members of First Irishburg. I'd told his mom at one time, but I'd never told him. And Noah can vouch for this. It was interesting, his reaction. I don't know if he'd had a particularly difficult day. I don't know if it'd been a hard day for him, but he said, there are just some days when you wonder if you make a difference. And he said, I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I don't tell you that to say, look at the pastor and what he's doing. What I say is, it was just a little bit in my heart that said, express it, and I believe it was God working through that. And I left that and I thought, how many opportunities like that have I missed? Just to say thank you, just to write a note, just to be someone that's an encouragement. One of the things that I've discovered in my life is it's a whole lot harder to be critical and grumbling and complaining, which is not the way God has intended us for, to be. It's a lot harder to do that when you're living a life where you're continually reminding yourself and the people in your life how grateful you are for them. One of the things I love about Thanksgiving is, to this point, it hadn't got caught up in the culture war. Right? Nobody's trying to cancel Thanksgiving. Right? Now, something will come out tomorrow and somebody's going to cancel Thanksgiving. There may be aspects, but you know, everybody loves like, it's Thanksgiving. It's because we know deep in our souls how important it is to give thanks. And so I ask you this question. What are you going to do this week to give thanks to God and to give thanks to someone else? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that your will would be done. We are so grateful for this psalm. And the way it reminds us of how you love us and you care about us. That you're pursuing us at all times. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people that would just receive your pursuit, understand it. And that we would live our lives confidently knowing that you are taking care of us. Lord, we pray that in this moment, your your love and your faithfulness will continue to remind us of who you are.